1: a virgin. Eight years, a whore. And ten years, a pimp. A mock epitaph to Madame de Pompadour. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.13, Madame de Pompadour, After Us, The Flood. A very happy new year to you all. Last time, Renette D'Etoile became Madame de Pompadour and Louis XV's official mistress. After struggling initially to satisfy the king's insatiable sexual appetite, she secured herself as a major power broker at Versailles, with her own salon and theatre, spending vast amounts of money on property and possessions. Indeed, many at this time thought of her as the king's real chief minister. Along the way, she made a number of enemies among some of the king's oldest and most feckless friends. She saw off the Marquis of Argenson and the Count of Maurepas, but there were still plenty more snakes in the grass lying in wait. And, as we shall see, While the Royal Treasury could just about absorb the cost of all her activity, she was writing checks that her own body simply could not cash. But before we get going with this final instalment in the story of Madame de Pompadour, I'd like to thank all of my amazing supporters on Patreon who keep this show going. If you would like to join them in supporting me and the podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter where we post some bonus content adding more context to the episodes. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In the mid-1750s, Renette was approaching the height of her powers. She was now in her early 30s and was Queen of France in all but name. But having amassed all of that power and influence, she now had a great deal that she could lose. Tragedy struck in 1754, when her only surviving child, Alexandrine, caught a fever and died at the age of 10. Her education had been entrusted to the nuns at the Convent of the Assumption, and Renette had big plans for her to marry the son of a duke. But it was not to be. This was followed ten days later with the death of her father. With her mother having died some years before, this meant that her only surviving relation was her brother Abel. This personal tragedy came as her enemies at court continued in their attempts to overthrow her having failed in their attempts to undermine her with gossip, they attempted a different form of intrigue. One of Renette's many duties as the chief lady of the court was arranging marriages. And in the early 1750s, she matched up the Count of Chazelle-Beaupré with Charlotte-Rosalie de Romanet. The young and pretty blushing bride was the niece of Madame d'Estrade, one of Renette's confidants but friends at Versailles were often just enemies in waiting. De had recently become the lover of one of Renet's opponents, the Count of Argenson. Remember him? His brother, the Marquis, had been exiled from court after trying and failing to take on Renet, and was now whittling his time away writing his salty memoirs. Well, this Argenson was very much around but had found his influence over the king diminished by Renet's increasing power. Their plan was simple. Put Charlotte Rosalie under the king's nose. He was insatiable, so he was sure to make her his new mistress, and could eventually supplant Renet, meaning that the new maîtresse en titre would be their creature. It wasn't a complicated plan, but it was a tried and tested formula. After all, it was, more or less, what Renette had done. Initially, this plan went swimmingly. In his memoirs, Jean-François Mamontel wrote the recollections of a witness to the following. Quote, With a view of supplanting Madame de Pompadour, Monsieur Argenson and Madame d'Estrade inspired the king a passion for the young and beautiful Madame de Choiseul. The rendezvous was arranged. The young lady went to it. Monsieur Argençon and Madame Destrade were extremely interested and anxious about what should transpire. After waiting a long time, Madame de Choiseul entered, with her hair dishevelled and in a state of disorder which announced her triumph. Madame Destrade flew to meet her with open arms and asked if the deed was done. Yes, she replied, I have done it. I am loved. He is happy. She is to be dismissed. He has given me his word. But one should never trust the word of a post-coital Louis XV, and Renette would not be supplanted without a fight. Being the king's mistress was a lot more complicated than just simply opening your legs, closing your eye, and thinking of England. It took subtlety, finesse, and Charlotte Rosalie had not been raised or coached as effectively as Renette had, nor did she have her natural ability. Charlotte Rosalie was young and reckless. She showed the king's love letters to her friends. She began to try and arrange royal marriages, and interfere in state business she did not understand. Renette quickly got a hold of the situation, colouring Louis and giving him a royal, pun intended, ticking off. Charlotte Rosalie was sent away, crisis averted. Argenson managed to keep his position at court, but his lover de was also exiled from Versailles on Renette's orders. But while she had won this round, this affair did show Renette that she needed a new solution to dealing with Louis's rampant libido. She had never been able to fully keep up with it, and by now the sexual part of their relationship was beginning to wind down. This was a dangerous moment for her, but instead of trying to move against the unstoppable force, she instead came up with an ingenious solution. The danger was not so much that the king would sleep with other women, that was pretty much a given, but that this woman would gain enough influence to challenge her. Therefore, Renette had to ensure that these women that did sleep with the king were of low enough birth that they could not be accepted in Versailles, and could therefore be hidden away from where real power lay. The place chosen was Louis's hunting lodge in the Parc-aux-Seuf, in the grounds of Versailles. Louis's people would trawl through Paris's theatres and artist studios to find beautiful, young, lower-class women. They would be brought to the lodge, where they would be served by a small staff, and be periodically visited by the king for sex. When they got pregnant, or he tired of them, he would reward them with some money and perhaps an advantageous marriage. Some have characterised this lodge as being akin to a brothel, but in many ways it's more analogous to a harem, albeit on a much smaller scale. But unlike, say, the harem of the Ottoman Sultan that we've talked about in previous episodes, these women were not enslaved, and their children had no prospect of inheriting the crown. The time in the Placo serf was generally short, as Louis preferred his sexual conquests to be virgins wherever possible, He had contracted venereal disease before, and this is what passed for good sexual health back then. But it could be argued that this arrangement was of mutual benefit to everyone. It kept the king satisfied, it maintained Renette's power, relieved her of her sexual duties, and provided arguably again a better life for many ambitious, poorer women. Renette's many detractors have often used this to characterise her as nothing more than a brothel madam, But not only was this not a brothel, but it's not at all clear what influence she really had over the lodge. She didn't seem to have any role in running or finding the women that lived there, but there's no doubt that she encouraged it. This new phase in her relationship with Louis came with its disadvantages and risks, but also opened up opportunities. Since the beginning of their relationship, she and Louis had been denied the sacrament due to their adulterous relationship. Despite his constant and flagrant philandering, Louis was a very godly man, and so Rennet hoped that by repairing his relationship with the church, she might bind herself closer to him. This required her to make quite a few changes. Gone were her stimulating chats with scandalous people like Voltaire and other writers that were considered borderline heretical, replaced instead with days spent in convents and strict observance of religious holidays. She even attempted reconciliation with her husband. Remember that throughout this time she had remained married to Charles-Guillaume d'Etoile. Understandably, though, he had not forgotten nor forgiven her betrayal. Writing to her, "'I have received, madam, the letter in which you tell me you intend to offer yourself to God. "'I should like to be able to forget the way in which you offended me. "'Your presence could only remind me of it strongly.' therefore the only thing we can do is to live apart. This actually suited Renette just fine, as it proved that her husband didn't even want her back, strengthening her argument that her separation from him was not, in fact, her fault. She even barricaded the passageway between her and the king's chambers, further symbolising the fact that their sexual relationship was over. Her godly turn was the talk of the court with opinion divided as to whether or not it was genuine. Some noted that bereavement and poor health often lead to people reconnecting with the divine, while others saw it as pure hypocrisy. The Abbot of Bernice sums this view up well. I told her straight out that not one soul was going to be taken in by this play acting. Everyone would say she was nothing but a hypocrite, and that she would soon tire of it. She wasn't best pleased and that was from one of her good friends. She worked hard on the royal chaplain to allow her to publicly take communion, and even appealed to the Pope. But the stains of her past sins could not be so easily expunged. The best she could get was the promise of private communion away from the court, and that wouldn't do at all. What she did manage, though, was to get closer to the Queen. A deeply pious woman, Marie was impressed by Renette's newfound godliness, and rewarded her with a position in her household as a lady-in-waiting. This was a strong endorsement, the second time that Queen Marie had cast a spell of legitimacy on Renette. In January 1757, Louis was on his way back from visiting one of his daughters, when suddenly an assailant pushed his way past his guards and stabbed him in his right side. Fortunately for him, it was only a small blade, and the king had been wearing quite a few layers to protect him from the cold, so he wasn't seriously injured. His greatest wounds, though, appeared to be mental, as he appeared to be acting under the misapprehension that he was universally beloved. He was convinced he was dying, and sent for his family and chaplains to stand vigil over his so-called deathbed. He melodramatically greeted his wife by saying, "'I am assassinated! I am assassinated!' He took no notice of his doctors, one of whom remarked that such a wound should not have prevented him from attending a ball, let alone a trip to meet his maker. One notable absence from said quote-unquote deathbed was Renette. Louis had not sent for her, and she was thus denied entry. While she had a good relationship with his wife, Louis's children hated her, and used as this opportunity to try and cut her out of the king's life. And this was no mere paranoia. Remember that the last time Louis had been seriously ill, he had broken up with his former mistress and banished her from the court. Everything Renette had built up and accomplished during her decade at Versailles was now in jeopardy. It must be said she didn't react very well under the strain. Reportedly crying and fainting with alarming regularity, while many of her friends avoided her as if she were a leper. Indeed, one of her closest friends and protégés, Jean-Baptiste de Marchot, betrayed her and allied with Argenson in an attempt to have her removed from court. In return for a high-ranking position on the governing council, he lied to Renet, telling her that the king had ordered that she must leave Versailles. Renet went into hysterics at first, but one of her ladies calmed her nerves. Sing through Marchot and Argenson's game she advised Renette to play for time. So she took her sweet old time getting her things packed, long enough for the king to recover some of what remained of his wits and finally call on her. Renette did not soon let Louis forget his neglect, nor what it had nearly cost her. He may have been one of his oldest friends, but she insisted that Argenson be banished not only from Versailles, but Paris as well. Machault, too, was fired, though his previously close relationship with Renette meant a more comfortable exile. She may have nearly lost everything, but Renette actually emerged from this crisis even more powerful than ever. But while she had defeated all her enemies at home, a far more substantial foe lay abroad. Frederick II, the Prussian king, was no fan of Madame de Pompadour. He would tease Louis about his mistress referring to her as Miss Petticoat II. He even wrote his own Poissonades and had them published in France, and went so far as to call his favourite dog, with whom he shared his bed, Pompadour. He had no respect for her, nor she for him. And while he was undoubtedly an arrogant ass, it's never a good idea to make enemies with a man who had become known to history as Frederick the Great. The Seven Years' War is sometimes called the real First World War. Armies clashed on every continent, from India to Ohio, Senegal to Silesia, and all over the high seas. It's one of the most important wars that many of you may never have heard of, the last great war of the Ancien Régime. For centuries, France had had two major enemies. Its naval and colonial foe, Great Britain, and the other great land power on the European continent, the Austrian Habsburgs. In the 1740s, a dispute over the Austrian throne led to the War of Austrian Succession, where France and Prussia, along with other allies, tried to prevent the accession of Maria Theresa of Austria, who was backed by the British. But while that war had now ended and Maria Theresa confirmed, each side reserved at least as much hatred for their allies in the conflict as for their former adversaries. Most notably, the Austrians blamed Britain for the loss of resource reach Silesia to the Prussians, while Frederick the Great eyed up the growing power of the Royal Navy, which compared favourably to the waning star of France. What we have now is a kind of precursor to the build-up to the war more popularly called the First World War, as a series of alliances were created. First, Austria signed an agreement with Russia, and so to counteract that, Prussia signed one with Great Britain. But wait, you may ask! Weren't the Prussians allied with the French? Well, yes, but Frederick was betting on the historic rivalry between France and Austria being strong enough to preclude any chance of them joining together against him. British and French armies and ships began clashing in North America in what became known as the French and Indian War. But colonial conflicts did not necessarily always lead to wars between the mother countries in Europe. Austria sensed an opportunity. To recover its lost lands, it would create the unholiest of all alliances, the unlikeliest of friendships between old froes. An alliance between Bourbon, France, and Habsburg, Austria. Their chancellor, Count Wenzel Anton von Kaunitz, was an old friend of Renet's. He had served as the Austrian ambassador of Versailles in the early 1750s and began laying the groundwork for this new alliance then. He also took care to observe how the Versailles court worked and how decision-making was taken at the highest levels of French government. The lesson he took was that the best way to get things done was not to go through Louis' ministers, they were all ardently anti-Austria, but to go straight to the king himself, who was more amenable. And how would he do that? Why go through his old friend, the woman who had the ear of Louis XV, Madame de Pompadour? He arranged for his new ambassador in Versailles, Georg von Stahenberg, to secretly pass Renette a series of letters addressed to her from his Empress Maria Theresa. Her words were warm and friendly, a complete contrast to the ogreish insults of King Frederick. Renette set up a meeting with Starhemberg and one of her allies, the abbot of Bernis at one of her summer houses. Now, the Abbot of Bernie seems like a lovely man, but he was hopelessly out of his depth as the foreign minister. What was called for was a man of tact, skill and subtlety. He was not that man. Now, the details of this meeting are somewhat murky, as our best account for it comes from Berni, who would have a complete 180 on this after the fact. At the time, he was all for the Austrian alliance. But in his memoirs, with the gift of hindsight, he would claim he was always against it, as it would only lead to war and destruction. This meeting was conducted with the utmost secrecy, with Renet, Bernie and Starhemberg all arriving separately and from different routes. Together, the three of them put their heads together and thrashed out a deal. It's worth pausing here to remark on just how extraordinary this is. Renette was trusted by the King of France to negotiate a deal that would upend the whole continent and unite centuries old foes. It would be as if Hitler had sent Eva Braun to negotiate the Nazi Soviet neutrality pact with Molotov and Ribbentrop in 1939. She, a woman of relatively modest birth, who, let's remember, was not the Queen, was being recognised by the King of France and the Empress of Austria as the key to starting this alliance. She was there, in the room when it happened, when a deal was struck that would launch a revolution. The terms thrashed out were that should Austria or their German allies be attacked, France would come to their aid. And in the event of war between Britain and France, Austria would remain neutral. As a sweetener, the Austrian Netherlands, basically Belgium and Luxembourg, would be traded for the French possession of Parma in Italy. This would be formalised in May 1756 in the Treaty of Versailles, an agreement not as well known as the one signed 150 years later, but still vitally important to the course of world history. Along with the Treaty of Westminster signed a few months before between Britain and France, the continent's alliance systems had completely changed. A change so drastic it has become known as the Diplomatic Revolution. Old allies were now enemies old foes, uneasy bedfellows. This, in France, did not go down well at all. In her biography of Renette, Nancy Mitford describes their outrage this way, the French could not think it natural at all. Were they now to find themselves shoulder to shoulder with the killers of their uncles, fathers and brothers? Was France no longer able to defend the German states against persecution? When the terms of the treaty were published, it was observed that France was obliged to go to the assistance of the Empire, whoever attacked it, while Austria was neutral in the Anglo-French quarrel. Nothing had been done to prepare the French for the shock of suddenly finding themselves in the same camp as their erstwhile enemy. The people and the generals hated the alliance when it was made, and hated it even more violently when, after a few initial victories... French arms began to suffer a series of shocking reverses. About a month later, France essentially declared war on Britain by attacking their base at Menorca. Austria, as per the treaty, did nothing. But when Prussia invaded Saxony in August 1756, 24,000 French troops were deployed to its defence. Renée has taken considerable flack for her part in the diplomatic manoeuvres that led to the start of the Seven Years' War. And while some of it is warranted, she has been made something of a scapegoat. She was an amateur in a world of professionals when it came to foreign affairs and diplomatic niceties. The men she surrounded herself with and promoted, especially the Abbot of Bernie, were often much the same. Indeed, her great blunder was in ensconcing herself and the blundering Bernie with a talented Austrian diplomat and assuming that they would come out on top. As it was, France was involved in a war on the high seas and on distant continents against the British, and a land war in Europe with the hated Austrians against the Prussians, who a minute ago had been their allies. It all started well enough. The French army under Marshal Estrella won victory after victory, while Frederick found himself under attack from Russia and Austria, at one point even threatening Berlin. But then, inexplicably, Estre was replaced with Marshal Soubise. Well, perhaps not inexplicably, as he was one of Renet's favourites. He was likeable and brave, but more at home in the comfort of Versailles than on the battlefield, particularly when faced with a tactical genius like Frederick. Soubise was in charge of a Franco-Austrian army at the Battle of Rosbach in November 1757, against a Prussian force led by King Frederick. Soubise outnumbered Frederick by more than two to one and had possession of the high ground. But by the time the day was done, more than 10,000 French lay dead for the loss of only a few hundred Prussians. It was Frederick's tactical masterpiece and an utter disaster for France. And the French knew who was to blame. One observer wrote, Never was the public so inflamed against Madame de Pompadour as when news arrived of the Battle of Rosbach. Every day she received anonymous letters full of the grossest abuse, atrocious verses, threats of poison and assassination. She suffered the most acute grief, and could obtain no sleep save from opiates. All this discontent was excited by her protection of Soubise. It is now she is said to have said to Louis the phrase for which she is probably best known. Après nous, le déluge. After us, the flood, referring to the biblical flood. Frederick began to make a sport of trouncing French armies led by men, often only in their place because they were friends of Renet's. Benny was finally let go as foreign minister and was replaced by the Duke of Choiseul, another close ally of Rennet as he had her back during the intrigue of his cousin, Charlotte Rosalie, that I spoke about at the beginning of the episode. Now, actually, around this time, the Prussians were on the back foot, struggling to hold back the combined forces of Austria, France and Russia, while France was holding its own in its colonial wars against the British. So, what was Choiseul's big idea? Invade England! Because that has never gone badly for France before or since. This diverted French troops and attention from the action in Central Europe and in the colonies, all the while wasting men and resources France did not have. What followed, in 1759, is known in Britain as the Annus Mirabilis, the year the tide decisively turned all over the world in its favour against France. From Quebec to the Caribbean, Germany to India, France suffered defeat after defeat, and it only got worse from there. When the war finally ended in 1763, she was bankrupt and humiliated. She had lost vast swathes of territory. In North America, she was stripped of everything east of the Mississippi. All but five small trading posts in India were lost, and the subcontinent became destined to be known as the so-called Jewel of the British Empire. On the continent, Silesia would remain Prussian, who had now emerged as one of the dominant land powers in Europe. Otherwise, nothing had changed. Territorially, Austria had lost nothing, but France had lost almost everything. Renette took this very badly. One of her friends wrote about a conversation she had with her in january seventeen sixty four. I found her in great good looks and well nourished, and with the appearance of health, although she complained of insomnia, indigestion, and loss of breath whenever she climbed a stair. She spoke with all the vivacity and gestures of an accomplished actress about how much she was worried by the present, deplorable state of the kingdom. Then, opening her heart to me in a way she said she could do not to anyone else, she described her ailments with an eloquence and energy I have never before seen her to empty. In short, she struck me as quite demented and enraged, and I have never listened to a more effective sermon to illustrate the miseries inseparable from worldly ambition. She seemed so wretched, and at the same time so insolent, so violently agitated, so burdened by her supreme power, that I left her presence after an hour of this conversation, with my imagination convinced that no hope remained to her except death. She was only forty-two years old, and yet it seemed her time was running short. In February, while at one of her residences away from the capital, she was struck by a migraine so potent she could not walk unassisted. This then developed into pneumonia, which kept her bedridden for several days. She was not short of well-wishers. She had developed a horde of contact supporters and coattail grabbers during her time. And while many of them, I'm sure, were genuinely concerned for her welfare, there was considerable self-interest at play here as well. Their positions at court, government and in the army were often a direct result of their relationship with her. And if she were to go things could easily change louis the 14th is famous for the phrase taches c'est moi the state is me and while renette did not have quite that much power it wasn't far off she recovered well enough to return to versailles in april but that proved short-lived her illness returned with a violent intensity she called for her husband to say her last goodbyes but he declined citing ill health on his own part louis the true love of her life Rarely left her side in those final days. Though once the last rites had been read to her, he was no longer allowed to be in her presence. Even her enemies put their ire aside. The dauphin wrote to the Bishop of Verdun quote, She is dying with a courage rare for either sex. Her lungs are full of water or pus, and the heart congested or dilated. It is an unbelievably cruel and painful death. She spoke her last words to a priest. As he made her leave the room, she said, quote, One moment, monsieur, we will go together. Not long after, she was dead. Much like Hortense Mancini, Rennet would not find immediate peace in death. There was a rule that no non-royal dead body could remain in Versailles, so no sooner had she breathed her last than she was unceremoniously placed on a stretcher, lightly covered with a sheet, and then carted off to one of her nearby residences. Two days later, she was taken to Paris for her funeral. Louis' servants tried to keep him from the windows to spare him the sight of his lover making her final journey. He, of course, could not go to the funeral. But he brushed past them and came to the balcony to watch it go past. It was a cold, wet, and windswept evening, and without a coat or hat, he was soaked through and freezing. Tears pouring down his cheek, he bitterly remarked quote, A friend of twenty years and this is the only tribute I am allowed to pay her. She died childless, so her possessions were, for the most part, left to her brother, her ladies, or to Louis. Abel Poisson was so overwhelmed by all that he had inherited, that he spent the next two years selling most of it off, with the auctions becoming a regular fixture in Parisian social life. Louis, though distraught, did not linger long before acquiring a new mistress – Jean Bessu, better known to history as Jeanne du Barry. She was a daughter of a monk and a servant girl, but her beauty bewitched the king to such a degree that he raised her up to be his official mistress. She would remain so until his death. Hers is a remarkable story, but one for another time. Renette was not well remembered in her own time. Her extravagance and role in the disastrous war that cost France so much lingered long in French minds, something only further hammered home during and after the Revolution, which came three decades later. Her very power and influence became her undoing, and she has taken much of the blame for France's decline, which rightfully should have sat with Louis himself, whose very indolence and laziness had allowed her to amass so much power in the first place. In the end, she was her own worst enemy. Her attempts to support her lover helped bring the country to a disastrous war, while her exertions to please her lover and do her duty wrought a mortal cost to her own health. But look at what she achieved. She fulfilled the prophecy that she would be the king's mistress, becoming arguably the most famous mistress that ever lived, and was with him until her final hours. He may not have been the greatest king, But as a lover and a friend, he was there until the end.